Hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. The William and Hannah Harrison family joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in England. And then in 1856, they set sail from Liverpool on the ship, the Horizon. When they reached Iowa City, the Harrison family became part of the Martin Handcart Company. And as you know, the story of that company all partook of the sufferings and extremity that came upon the Martin Company. In fact, things became so bad with reduced rations that one of the older sons, Aaron, actually stayed at Fort Laramie, Wyoming, and joined the United States Army. He didn't come on to Utah with the family. It is also recorded in the family records that Hannah, the mother of the family, at one point became so starved when her baby would nurse All the babe would get was blood. It is reported that Hannah actually at one point made a snowball and asked the Lord to bless it. She said it tasted like manna. But it is of their 14-year-old son, George, George Harrison, that I would like to speak. With the company on strictly reduced rations, George, who had already been ill with malaria, became so weak that he made the decision somewhere near Deer Creek Station that he would not go on with the company. He said, quote, I slipped away into the willows that bordered the creek and hid. In the excitement, no one noticed my absence, not even my own folks. It was not long before the handcart caravan disappeared over a hill to the west. Why did I do this? Well, I was starving. I thought, if I thought anything clearly, that my family would be better off without me. End of quote. Well, for a few moments, George just stood there, alone in the wilderness. And then he happened to remember that back about a mile, there was an Indian camp. George determined that it was better to take his chances with the Indians than sure starvation with the handcart company. So he walked back a mile, came up to a teepee, and boldly lifted the flap. He saw an Indian family inside. There was a mother, he said, and about a half a dozen papooses. He said, they all stared at me in open mouth astonishment. An iron kettle was on the coals of a fire in the center of the teepee. Something was cooking inside of it. Pointing to the kettle, I pleaded, Give me some. Give me some. Well, that Indian mother understood and dished up a large helping of boiled buffalo meat on a tin plate. George ate ravenously. When he finished... He held out the plate and asked for more. Oh, 
exclaimed the red mother with a touch of sympathy in her tone. And then George said, she heaped my plate the second time. And he said, I devoured the meat just as hungrily as before, end of quote. When he had finished, the kindly mother motioned for him to go. George stood up, but as he did so, he suddenly became very dizzy and passed out cold on a pile of buffalo skins, where he would remain until the next day digesting his overdone meal. Meanwhile, the husband of the Indian mother, a white mountain man, returned. Also, George's father, who had been very, very worried, came back along the trail and found him. Now, his father, William, was determined to take George back. But the father of the Indian mother said, Why don't you leave the boy here with the Indians? He'll be much better off than to try to make that trip over the mountains with nothing to eat. That would, he said, simply be the death of him. Well, George's father protested, I cannot leave the lad here. Well, you can't take him with you, said the mountaineer. He can't walk. I'll carry him, said George's father. Oh, come on now, old man. Be sensible. You can hardly carry yourself. Leave him here. The Indians will treat him all right, and next spring he can go on with some other immigrant train. End of quote. Well, reluctantly, George's father agreed to let him stay with the Indians. <laughs> George would remain among those Indians for the next 14 months, where he learned their ways and their language. He took them in and they took him in. In time, George's clothes wore out. He said, quote, My red mother made me a real Indian suit, a buckskin and fringed and beaded. I was an Indian boy for sure, from head to foot, would I put on those new clothes, end of quote. Well, when the time came for George to go on, he joined up with a group that was headed west out of Fort Laramie. They hired him as a cook, and they took care of him. As he bid goodbye to his Indian mother, he said, quote, She felt very bad that I was leaving them, and the papooses all cried. End of quote. George went on across the plains, and later on in 1858 found himself at Horseshoe Bend near Fort Bridger, Wyoming. When they arrived and set up camp, he looked across the river, and he saw an Indian camp. I wonder, he thought, and he made his way over, and sure enough, discovered to his joy. It was, he said, my red mother and family. All were delighted to see me. The papooses hugged my legs and danced with glee, but my Indian mother was troubled. Finally, she told me they were without food. George said, this nearly broke me up. I remembered vividly how she shared with me when I first came to her teepee, end quote. George said he would do something. He went back to the company he was traveling with and explained the situation and asked for some food to share with the family that had saved his life. He was firmly told there was none to spare. George pleaded, and though his friends in the company felt bad, they said, 
they could not spare any rations. George was so desperate, he began to cry. There, there, Georgie, the leader said. I'll see what I can do. And a short time later, the leader came back with a loaded sack of provisions, all that George could carry. He quickly returned to the teepee with the food. You never saw a happier and more grateful people, he said, than those red friends of mine. It was small pay for all that they had done for me. Well, George bid them goodbye again and again. The papooses cried. He never saw them again. But, he said, I have kept them close to my heart through all these years. End quote. Now, this is the part where I hope you understand. Today, if only the folks in our world would just calm down, stop hating, stop caring about the color of our skin or our nationality, and just take care of each other like this. Oh, one more thing. That company that hired George on took care of him and brought the Mormon boy to Utah safely and was so generous to his Indian family? Well, they were soldiers of the United States Army, part of Johnston's army, on their way to Utah to make war with the Mormons in what would be called the Utah War. In December 1843, 21-year-old Priscilla Staines set out alone, leaving behind the land of her birth, her family, her friends, everything. She records, quote, It was a dreary winter day on which I went to Liverpool. The company with which I was to sail was all strangers to me. When I arrived at Liverpool and saw the ocean that would soon roll between me and all I loved, my heart almost failed me. But, she said, I had laid my idols all upon the altar. There was no turning back. I remembered the words of the Savior. He that leaveth not father and mother, brother and sister for my sake, is not worthy of me. And she said, I believed his promise to those who forsook all for his sake. So I thus alone set out for the reward of everlasting life, trusting in God. End of quote. She boarded the good ship Fanny, bound for New Orleans, arriving in January 1844. Upon arrival, Priscilla, along with the others, expected to board the church-owned steamship, the Maid of Iowa, to sail upriver to Nauvoo. But the Maid of Iowa was tied to the dock and embargoed with a debt against it. The immigrants were stranded until one of the sisters, an English sister named Mary Bennett, came forward and out of her own funds paid the debt against the ship, fueled it, and outfitted it for the voyage. Very soon the company was on its way to Nauvoo. It was a tedious journey, 
a long one upriver, fraught with much persecution and harassment from those along the shore. As they neared Nauvoo, Priscilla, the girl, and Mary Bennett were talking about their forthcoming arrival and that they would meet the prophet Joseph Smith. Priscilla boldly declared, quote, I felt certain as the boat drew near that I should be able to pick out the prophet Joseph Smith at first sight. This belief I communicated to Mrs. Bennett, whose acquaintance I had made on the voyage. She wondered at that. But I felt impressed by the spirit that I should know him. End of quote. Can you picture it now? The ship is sailing up towards Nauvoo. As it neared the pier, a crowd of saints was turned out to welcome the new arrivals that they heard were coming. Priscilla said, quote, The prophet was standing among the crowd. I recognized him according to the impression and pointed him out to Mrs. Bennett, with whom I was standing alone on the hurricane deck, end quote. And what happened in the next moment, neither woman could have expected. Priscilla said, quote, Scarcely had the boat touched the pier, when singularly enough, Joseph sprang on board and without speaking with anyone, made his way direct to where we were standing and addressing Mrs. Bennett by name, thanked her kindly, for lifting the embargo from his boat and blessed her for so materially aiding the saints. End of quote. Now, I think you understand. Priscilla had never seen Joseph, and Joseph had never seen Mary Bennett. When the Spirit of the Lord is with us, we are not strangers to one another. Jessica Nelson of the JSP shared that story with me. Thank you, Jessica. This next story, once again, for some reason this week, I seem to be jumping into dangerous waters, and this one may be as well. As I mentioned earlier this last week, I was in Wyoming. Now, I didn't see this event. I read about it. But last Thursday, near Superior, Wyoming, the Federal Bureau of Land Management began a large-scale roundup of wild horses from the Wyoming High Plains. As part of a, a range management strategy, they intend, over the next few weeks, to capture more than 4,000 wild horses, most of which will be put up for adoption. Now, the capture strategy, it seems, is to drive the wild horses with helicopters into large traps, wide V-shaped open fences that gradually narrow down into inescapable capture corrals. Understandably, this roundup is highly controversial and emotionally charged on both sides. Now, as for me, I love horses very much. I guess you could say they're probably my spirit animal. But I also have a degree in wildlife and range science. I understand range management. So I see both sides, and I make no judgment 
on the matter? Well, it seems that last Thursday, that helicopter came upon a small band of wild horses and attempted to drive them into the trap. Writer Angus Thurmer Jr. described what happened. He said, After being pushed by the helicopter for miles, the group charged away from the mouth of the trap, split apart, ran up a steep hillside, and again regrouped. It's pushed back toward the trap, he said, only to evade again and again the aim of the herding pilot. End of quote. Finally, after they had tried so long and so hard, the Wranglers and the BLM called off the drive, and those horses went free. So determined and intelligent was this singular group of horses in evading the trap that one observer, Lynn Hansen, dubbed them the Defiant Five. Hansen wrote, quote, The Defiant Five were chased up and down rocky hills and terrain for about an hour. Every time they got near the trap site, the horses brilliantly split up and ran in different directions. End of quote. And there were pictures in the article that I read. Well, I read it, I was entertained by it, and went on, but I couldn't quit thinking about it. Finally, while I was out running this morning, I determined I had to write something. It kept coming back to me because there's a powerful lesson in the behavior of those wild horses. They are free and intelligently determined to remain that way. Somehow, with the wisdom that those horses were not supposed to have, those five horses managed to evade cleverly concealed traps while so many of their herdmates were unwittingly captured and taken away. They earned for themselves the noble name of the Defiant Five. Now, here's the lesson. Who are you and what are you about? Is your family so well prepared, trained, that no matter how subtle of the trap the adversary can lay, he can't take your family? Each family member can see, discern, and comprehend they cleverly hidden traps and snares of the adversary, and they run away every time back to the family group. Have the members of your family been taught to recognize the ways of the adversary? It is my hope that you and yours are the defiant five, the stubborn six, the noble nine, or whatever number may be applicable to your family. I want it to be so that my family, if any of them are listening tonight, that my family proves also to be disturbers and annoyers of his kingdom, along with the prophet Joseph. May it be so that every morning when your family and mine gets up, the devil says with dismay, Oh, no. They're awake again. 
Again, I hope that story doesn't offend you. This story was written by my friend, Gene Tonioli, and it's masterfully done. Many ships have been lost at sea, but as you know, oceans are not the only place where there are maritime disasters. The Great Lakes, which straddle the United States and Canadian border, have had over 8,000 documented shipwrecks. Lake Erie, one of them, covers 2,000 of those wrecks, among the highest concentration of those wrecks in the world. The high rocky shore from just east of Cleveland, west to Cedar Point, combines with shallow water and sudden squalls to create one of the most dangerous stretches of water in the lakes. This location was likely where a tragic event happened, which motivated a writer to pen words for a hymn. You see, the Reverend Dwight L. Moody, a 19th century evangelist, told the following story in one of his sermons. He told of a ship nearing the harbor, Lake Erie, at Cleveland, Ohio. It was a dark night, and a violent storm produced punishing waves. Range lights were used in harbors and consisted of two lights, one set higher and back from the other, and then the lights along the shore. When these lights lined up, the range lights and the highlight vertically, one exactly above the other, the pilot knew the ship was positioned correctly to navigate the channel. On the night that Moody spoke of, a lighthouse was shining and functioned as the upper range light. The lighthouse keeper's job was to tend the tall lighthouse as well as the lower range light lanterns. However, for some reason, that night the lower lights, which were absolutely essential for safe navigation, were not lit. Seeing only the lights from the lighthouse, the captain asked the pilot, Are you sure this is Cleveland? Quite sure, replied the pilot. But, said the captain, where are the lower lights along the shore? Gone out, sir, replied the pilot. Can you make the harbor? asked the captain, to which the pilot replied, We must, sir, or perish. The pilot steered the vessel on what he thought was a course towards safety. But without the lower lights to guide his way, he missed the channel. The ship struck upon the rocks, and many lives were lost in the cold, stormy water of Lake Erie. Reverend Moody ended his sermon with the admonition, quote, Brethren, the master will take care of the great lighthouse. Let us keep the lower lights burning. Well, a young man named Philip P. Bliss heard Reverend Moody's sermon. He wondered if someone's negligence or misfortune had caused the deadly wreck. Then he questioned if he, as a Christian, 
had neglected to do his part? Was he doing enough? Was he an example and reaching out to bring others who may be drowning in sin or misery to a knowledge of Christ? Shortly after the sermon ended, Bliss picked up his pen and began writing both the words and music to let the lower lights be burning. Brightly beams our Father's mercy from his lighthouse evermore, but to us he gives the keeping of the lights along the shore. Let the lower lights be burning. Send a gleam across the way. Some poor, fainting, struggling seaman you may rescue, you may save. Dark the night of sin has settled, loud the angry billows roar. Eager eyes are watching, longing for the lights along the shore. Trim your feeble lamp, my brother, some poor sailor tempest-tossed, trying now to make the harbor in the darkness may be lost. That hymn was first published in 1871 in a Sunday school hymnal and became extremely popular. Churches throughout the land began singing this hymn, and it blessed, and still does, millions of people. In the New Testament, the Master said, Inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Are we doing all we can, ministering to keep the lower lights burning? Thank you, if you are. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week.